This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi everybody, welcome to episode number 52, recorded on July 10th, 2015. I'm your host, Tim Cry from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University, along with my co-host, Neelay Shaw. Welcome, Neelay. Happy to be here. And we have a special guest with us today who used to be a co-host, one of the original members and founding members of TWIPO, uh, and is uh, visiting here today, Dr. James Geller. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Good Great to have you back. Great to have you back on the air live. <laughs> Good <laughs> and, to be back. Uh, I can't remember how many episodes you joined us for, but or you helped us with uh, uh, back in the early days, 2010, 2011. Um, but we kept it going and um, tried to keep doing them. And great to have you now as a guest instead of just a, a host. So as you may recall, we used to do with our guests, and that is to sort of get them to tell us about their past how they came to where they are today, their education, a little bit about maybe their passions, if there was a particular incident or patient or um, teacher or something that inspired you when you were young. What, tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up and maybe sure. how you got to medicine. Oh, okay. Um, Not to put you on the spot or anything. But well, no, that's okay. Uh, well, so I grew up in New York in the suburbs in Westchester County. Went to uh, Dartmouth College. I studied chemistry and got my pre-med done there. Yeah, took a year off and explored the idea of going into the legal world. Uh, turned out not to be for me and in, in, in the interim, uh, applied for medical school and never had studied abroad. So I, I, I looked at the Sackler program in Tel Aviv and was very excited at the idea and the life journey. Loved being there. Oh, okay. Um, not to put you on the spot or anything. Well, no, that's okay. Uh, well, so I grew up in New York in the suburbs in Westchester County. Went to, uh, Dartmouth College. I studied chemistry and got my pre-med done there. Yeah, took a year off and explored the idea of going into the legal world. Uh, turned out not to be for me and in, in, in the interim, uh, applied for medical school and never had studied abroad. So I, I, I looked at the Sackler program in Tel Aviv and was very excited at the idea and the life journey. Loved being there for about four years, studying at the Tel Aviv University where I got my MD degree. By the end, I was missing home though, went back to New York. And did my pediatric residency at New York Medical College. And from there, uh, you know, my, my, the reason I, I found interest in pediatrics was when I was in the hospital wards in Tel Aviv. It's, it's a sort of a feeling that you get when you walk on the wards in a children's hospital that, uh, people are happy and working towards helping kids and there's just, uh, a vibe. And I think that for med students out there, Finding a place that they're comfortable with, where they feel uh, comfortable, is, is part of the process of, of deciding your path. And when I and that that feeling in hospitals, I think, exists across the Atlantic. Uh, it's just a worldwide phenomenon in children's hospitals. So that feeling was good to me. And during my residency, I found that I had I kept picking up the the hemonc patients, particularly the onc patients, and and. Uh, Notice that the complexity, the intellectual challenge, the emotional challenge, the the sense that the field was changing under our feet and had a lot of promise 
just attracted me and uh, early on decided that I wanted to go into it as a career and then spent uh, four years down in St. Jude in Memphis in my fellowship where I did some lab work and clinical work and uh, gained interest in trying to kill tumor cells in different ways with different drugs and became more interested in understanding the biology of cancer and targeting these cancers uh, with, with novel therapies. From there, I've been at Cincinnati Children's for the last 11 years and have focused my interest initially with all oncology, but now uh, solid tumors and specifically kidney, liver, and other rare tumors, and uh, my interest in new drug development and uh, finding new ways to treat kids with cancer has persisted, and, and that's where I focus my energies now. Yeah, you've done a lot of work as you presented here today in terms of developing new... And that's where I focus my energies now. Yeah, you've done a lot of work as you presented here today in terms of developing new clinical trials of novel agents, phase one studies, phase two trials, um, even some work in some, could argue, be argued as phase three studies through COG. Can you tell us about how you sort of found that niche or got into that? Was it a particular patient? Was it a particular oh, biology of these tumors? It was, what attracted you? So there's a lot of patients that have affected me. I think we're all in this field affected by patients along the way. And whether we're aware of it or not, I, I, there's not one particular patient. Um, there are several patients with kidney cancers that when I was a fellow, uh, I was assigned to and, and created bonds with uh, complex uh, Williams tumor patients and patients with renal cell carcinoma. And um, that led to two things. Number one, a sense of um, wanting to help these families with these diseases, but number two, uh, an evolving collaboration with, with a mentor, uh, Jeff Dome, in, 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 who's now in DC, uh, who chairs our COG Renal Tumor Committee. And we started working on projects uh, together and got involved with uh, renal cell carcinoma research early on then, which is a very rare disease. Uh, but that, you know, that uh, interest in new drug development and diseases where new therapies were needed was part of the theme as I became much more involved in the Renal Tumor National national efforts. Now, one of the things you talked about today were not only the clinical trials, but also the tribulations of uh, drug yes. development. What are some of the um, sort of lessons learned or highlights for you, either for, for parents that support, maybe for parents to understand about how yeah. this works in the background, or, you know, trainees? Well, I think n not all drugs are available to be studied. Finding interest in uh, industry uh, to support studies in children uh, takes on different forms. It, it, one path doesn't always work in each situation and I found that companies respond to different things. You might get a drug study and it turns out to be a drug that's not going to last forever uh, because it's not showing any strong hits in a way that helps to get access and then to try to design a trial and support that trial. Uh, it takes It takes teams to make work it takes a lot of backroom talks. Sometimes it takes uh, lobbying by families. And um, I think the story behind um, a drug by immunogen is, is an interesting one, uh, where no disrespect to any company, they just their, their business model had moved on. But the drug was very interesting to the pediatric community. And Which I, drug is that? This is um, a drug called Lorvituzumab, or IMGN901. It's a drug that target cells that have a, an expression marker called CD56, and it carries with it a drug to it, a, a, a drug that uh, is more like a conventional chemo, but, but it's targeted. It's called an antibody drug conjugate. 
And um, the, these are drugs, these, this class of drug is showing high hit rates in other cancers, particularly leukemias and so on. And to have that kind of drug in, in, in pediatric solid tumors where we've seen it work very well in preclinical models was hard to let go of. And hearing that the drug company was going to drop it when we felt like the best models weren't tested, which were our pediatric models where kids might benefit, uh, was a challenge because it, it was just, it just wasn't in development. So the, the vision, we, we often complain about how people are barriers and how all the challenges exist, but to see our national cooperative group, the Developmental Therapeutics Committee, the leadership within Children's Oncology Group, and the liaisons in the Cancer Therapy Evaluations Program, CTEP, really just brainstorm over and over and over again and work together and talk together and figure out how to test this drug in kids. It, it turned out to be, uh, we hope, a success story. Uh, it should, we hope, open either in three to so, I, that's one example. And how, much, I, I, how many hours and how much blood and sweat? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I will say that, um, while I, I, I didn't have any, um, uh, specific, direct, um, intense dialogue with the family advocates who were aware of this drug and wanting this drug, uh, to any extent, it, it helped, I think, to know with all the parties that, um, blood and sweat was being expressed not just by the, the clinicians and, and physicians, but it was a community uh, voice that was being heard. And I think it was a meaningful voice that contributed. So I, I think that there was blood and sweat shared by all. Uh, and I, I just think it's an example of how when we all get together, we all do our parts. And even at the, the regulatory levels and levels that people will often scapegoat as being barriers, Everybody tried their best, and I think something's going to happen here. How, how long did it take to? Oh, how long? Well, honestly, uh, because in this particular situation, no new drug is being developed, and there's been a rush. So uh, I wrote the initial letter of intent in November of 2014, and by January, we had already had that letter approved by the DVL and off the Scientific Council. And as of this moment, that the actual full protocol has been developed, approved by our Developmental Therapeutics Committee, approved by our Scientific Council, approved by CTEP in, in some form, and now we're just waiting for the FDA to, to, to sign off on it in, in our design. So from start to finish, once we got the go to do it, we've mm, six to seven months. That's pretty rapid. That's, That's very rapid. rapid. I will say that the negotiations beforehand is a whole different story. So, so you bring up an interesting point of, uh, you know, how do we get all the players to the table? And, and there's for companies extended periods on patents. Do you offer them bonuses where they can mix and match? They develop a pediatric drug. They can they can apply extra benefits for an adult drug, or, or do you penalize them and, and do the reverse? You've worked with with a lot of pharma up to this point, and and what's your view on that? You know, it's hard to predict what drives a pharmaceutical company. Uh, they are independent businesses. I think that there is personally, uh, you know, we hear a lot of complaints about uh, the pace of translation of those findings. Um, and I think that um, some pressure should be applied, but also autonomy needs to exist for these companies to, to grow, develop, and thrive. And, and they, they do add meaningful contributions to our medical care industry. And I, I think that what drives them to do a pediatric study is not always the same from company to company. I think some companies are aware that 
for marketing purposes, uh, whether it's in the EU or in the US, uh, pediatric trials are requested and to the point, some points required. Um, I think that the patent extension of a drug that may have a strong business model is an often a big enough appeal for some companies to get pediatric data as well. I think there's a genuine interest by most companies to learn about the science and pediatric cancers bring a different biology, different science, and different lessons to be learned. And I genuinely believe that most industry companies have large subsections within their company interested to learn about what that brings to the understanding of their drugs. You know, sometimes they, they want to see a hit in, in a different model, perhaps they recognize that, you know, sometimes they, they want to see a hit in, in a different model, perhaps they recognize that the pediatric model is the right model for their drug. I think one example is EZH2 inhibition. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that there are a couple companies looking into trial design options and feasibility options of, of looking at the role of targeting EZH2 in, in tumors that have a gene that's related called INI1 mutated. So I, getting a, a signal on a rare disease, if it gets a drug approved, is, is, is meaningful. Um, I, I think what drives industry is often difficult to predict. One of the things that struck me is how much time this takes, right, and effort, as we've alluded to. How do you split your time during the day or during the week? You know, you see a lot of patients. How do you carve out the time to, to do all this, and how could other faculty do similarly? So I think uh, Dr. Kreib, as a chief of a division, faculty need to, to, to have a balanced approach to their careers and to their home lives. That mystical, perfect balance I think we all strive for. Some can do all this in the after hours. I've had colleagues and mentors say between midnight and 3 a.m. is the time you write your papers. And, and I think, Dr. Craig, you know some of who've said that before. I, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think that that is a durable plan for our community. And we want people to go into peds oncology and stay. We want people to, there's issues of personal burnout that are real for our career, for nursing, for oncologists, and so on, and for lab people. We need to make this a career that is uh, that is productive in the end product of science and advancement, but also allows for those who are trying to move the field to stay with it, to endure and to enjoy it, and you know, because they're people too. I think that if you expect junior faculty who are trying to do this, uh, without proper mentorship, either locally or even external to their center, and without at least some time allotted to them to develop their research interests. It still could be successful for some in those after hours, but I think the amount of people that are going to achieve this are going to be less. It still could be successful for some in those after hours, but I think the amount of people that are going to achieve this are going to be less. If you take care of patients who, and families who are afflicted with oncology issues, cancer issues, it's full-time job, no matter whether your hours are assigned that way or not. Having The other second thing I should have mentioned is not just having your time, uh, but having the team, uh, building in uh, and using learning how to use that team. I think for junior faculty, one of the things that I experienced in my own career was how inefficient I was in using the team that was even offered to me, using care managers and nurse practitioners. Uh, using is the wrong word, but... Uh, harnessing their strengths and really what they're quite capable of doing. Their job satisfaction, I think, goes up when they have their autonomy and they're taking on more. And 
having that synergism as a team enables, um, if you're doing it all yourself, which a lot of junior faculty do, they're just driven to prove uh, what they've got to do and put their dues in, but learning how to, to step back and you can steer a ship and help families and be there and be present, but also for some of the other things, let your team do that. What do you think are some of the um, prospects on the near horizon for liver, kidney tumors? Are there anything exciting coming out of pipe? For, for renal cell carcinoma, we're excited to advance a trial in collaboration with adults uh, for a translocation variant renal cell carcinoma. There's been um, a lot of talk between our collaborative groups and, and actually with family advocates as well. And some of that story actually reached other media. Uh, but uh, looking at anti-antigenics and looking at immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies uh, in a first-time trial of translocation renal cell between across crosses ages is something that we are working towards and still trying to dot all I's and T's, get all the players to the same table. Uh, for rhabdoid tumor of uh, the kidney, I think uh, we have to come up with something different and better, some biological modification, perhaps epigenetic modification, anaplastic wilms and relapse wilms tumor, uh, incorporating renatecan kids who have more advanced disease or relapse disease and is a drug that has shown activity now and drug that we can add new drugs to. Uh, there are drugs that perhaps negate some of the biological adverse effects such as P53 mutation or may work despite them that we can combine with a TCAN uh, that we're looking into. The immunogen compound called Lorvituzumab I mentioned is obviously very exciting for Wilms tumor as well. So. If, if that is a hit, which we, we hope, uh, and also is being targeted for neuroblastoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, and several other rare cell tumors, but if it's a hit in Wilms, you know, we're going to have to regroup and figure out how to build on that technology and that target. For liver tumors, there is a new uh, collaboration between the Children's Oncology Group and Sciopel in Europe and GPLT in Japan that has been working for the last two or three years, cross-continental visits, trying to harmonize our understanding of risk, harmonizing understanding of, of benefit from our therapies that we've used thus far, and the result of which is going to be a, a trial called FIT, uh, Pediatric Panic International Tumors Trials, and it, it's AHEP 1531 and COG speak. Um, it's going to be the first, I guess, world study of, of hepatoblastoma and hepatocellular carcinoma. The agents being integrated are not necessarily new biologics, uh, the way that we're using chemotherapy is different uh, for a large group aiming at reduction of toxicity and for a smaller group that have had poorer outcomes aiming at improved cure. And that's a trial that's going to be coming up shortly. As far as new targets for liver tumors, I think that and VEGF and, and others, beta-catene and wind signaling, um, is something I think we can consider targeting as well. There are a bunch of other insights that are being worked on in labs across the country that I think Will, will reveal themselves and show us a couple more targets to work out. Now you have a role in the NCI MATCH program? As well, there are a bunch of other insights that are being worked on in labs across the country that I think will, will reveal themselves and show us a couple more targets to work out. Now you have a role in the NCI MATCH program, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the PEATS MATCH trial is, is, uh, is similar to the adult MATCH trial where um, we are trying to come up with uh, five arbitrarily five targets that we think um, are targetable with novel drugs that are accessible with valid assays and meaningful drivers in their cancers. So a, a good target that's a meaningful target that can be meaningfully targeted 
And uh, instead of writing a trial for drug X that for cancer that's called Wilms tumor, for example, it's going to be using that drug to target all pediatric solid tumors uh, that have that mutation. So that's targeted personalized therapy. And the PMATCH trial is going to be a large uh, NCI-CTEP-sponsored uh, trial that's going to go be available across the country that's going to harness uh, some of our centralized biopathology acquisition and testing. It's, there's a lot of a lot of work going into this and, and generous funding nationally to get it started. And uh, the my involvement has been to represent the kidney tumor committee in the drug selection process of of narrowing down what drugs. It was a it was a good uh, sized committee uh, with all representation across the different subcommittees uh, nationally as well as others who are involved in the new drug development field. So is that program or that trial going to be something that opens through COG? And when do you think? Yeah, yeah, it's going to depend on. My understanding is it's going to depend on the COG infrastructure. When I don't feel equipped yes. to answer. Good. Um, anything else that you think is exciting on the horizon? It's 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 a world full of tribulations. We got to keep pushing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, there's challenges at every door, but there's always you know somehow progress keeps happening, and I think that we need to together with the families that are that are calling upon us to make a difference, the patients. I think we just need to keep keep that pressure forward and mm-hmm. doors seem to open. Things become possible. Not everything, but some things. There's reason for hope. Yes. The I'd like to get your opinion on this uh you know, it, we seem to have a paradox in treatment. Um whenever we've been treating patients with traditional chemotherapy, they handle it so much better than the adults. And in our, our uh, anecdotal experience we've actually seen that when we're treating their patients with the targeted therapeutics, they have more toxicity than the adults in some ways. And and are you seeing that on a, on a larger scale? And you know, we, we can you give me an example of where you think they have more toxicity. The uh, so we uh, recently had a couple patients with uh, renal cell carcinoma. They were both treated with the uh, the current standard of care, carotinib, and uh, very different toxicity yeah. in each of the two patients. Right. Very severe in both. One had a lot of allodynia. Uh, to the point where, where it was very debilitating. And, uh, and the other actually, um, uh, had, uh, severe hypertension and to the point of, of almost becoming nephrotic. Yeah. And, uh, and it's hard to kind of track yeah. what it is, particularly when you talk about diseases that are, are rare even amongst our rare diseases. I so like that anecdotally too, that for targeted is. Let, let me answer that question a couple different ways. Uh, firstly, the rates of toxicity from the biological anti-angiogenics, for example, used in RCC, I think that if you asked, and I can, I, I'm not a medical oncologist treating adults, but if you asked a few of them in the street mm-hmm. how many of their patients stay on full dose, you will find that the published trials somehow greatly underestimate the amount of patients that require dose reductions and modifications to the serafinibs and sinitinibs and, okay. and so on. So I don't I actually think that the, the toxicity of anti-antigenics is quite similar. Okay. I just think that our assumptions of how low those toxicities are in adults are incorrect. So, so and basically, we have to modulate our own expectations to some degree. I, I think so. I think that in that class of drug, uh, speaking with some medical oncologists that work in liver and kidney cancer, I know a lot of them that just start with serafinib 200 twice a day and don't go up. But the FDA-approved drug is four doses, 400 BID. Wow. Why do they do that? Yeah, and they do that because a lot of their patients don't tolerate it. Okay. So I, I think that that field, the early publications suggested toxicity rate, which has been maybe a little difficult to recapitulate. There are some 
toxicity issues we are seeing in kids. I, I don't get a sense that it's higher okay. uh, in my experience, whether it's using a mech inhibitor or otherwise. I do think that this is a perfect avenue for personalized medicine, pharmacology yes. work, um, studying because our, our patients have variable sizes, variable uh, degrees of prior therapy, variable degrees of organ function, so on. And then from age to age, you have different right. levels of expression of, of the different organs. And I, I think that we can harness variations from a research perspective mm-hmm. of our population to learn more about these drugs that could also inform how it's used in adults. And, um, and that's, you know, those are the kinds of trials I'm actually quite interested in, in moving forward, is understanding not just the MTD of drug X, that's a new biologic in our pediatric population, but going one step deeper, let's do some more personalization of that, do some more pharmacology studying of that, and, and seeing what variables contribute. You know, a lot of our patients are very heavily pretreated, and some are not, and so on. Sure. So I, I think this is an area where we could add, not just better understanding how we treat our patients with targeted therapies, but the lessons learned, I think, will be generalizable. So I think we've got to get you on to your next uh, appointment for the day. So um, to our listening audience, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at twipple at solvingkidscancer.org, you can follow us on Twitter at Twipple Podcast and also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes. Of course, we haven't gotten an email from a listener for a couple of years, but <laughs> i got to still you know, put it out there into the ether sphere and see if something comes through. Please write. <laughs> if you have anything specific for Dr. Geller, I'm sure he'd be... Happy to answer for you. Um, thanks for being here, Jim. Really, it's my pleasure. Your, your Thank time you. today. Thanks for co-hosting Neelay, and thanks for the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, uh, and also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.